Well, Lati, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, pleasure to be here too. Fantastic. Well, you do something that is very interesting, and I don't know many people that do what you do. You market yourself, or you actually are an identity coach, right? What exactly does that mean? So I'm an identity specialist because I do integrated work. So part of my work is coaching, part of it is psychotherapeutic, part of it is NLP-based, part of it is consulting, part of it is mentorship. Um, so a lot of what I do in, in essence, in terms of the actual work, is I bottle people's essence and fully integrate it in the outward expression by reconciling their internal and external parts. Mm. So what has genuinely happened, uh, especially post-Second World War, and now it's going to happen on an accelerated late rate post-COVID, is that um, there's so much external pressures of what people think they should be. And as a result of them being in that pressured situation, they have a lot of learned behaviors that cause so many issues in the modern world that we see. So you have your anxieties, you have your depressions, you have your breakdowns, you have your even subtle levels of fatigue. And there's always that question where people are talking about things like a quarter life crisis and then the half life crisis, because the pressure to be something is overrides the actual who you are and harnessing that to do the thing that you want to do. Yeah, that's pretty deep. I mean, in terms of capturing someone's essence, that's a, not a very easy thing to do. Uh, your essence consists of where you grew up, what you're naturally good at, what you like. I imagine there's a lot of different things there. How do you go about the process of even capturing someone's essence? Uh, is it a formal process, informal? How, how do you navigate that? So I think um, if I'm doing client work, it's very formal. Um, but in a lot of the speaking work that I do and the education work I do, I sort of teach people a process for them to understand what that is for them. So process, uh, essence is broken down to three main areas. Uh, it's a person's attitudes, a person's experiences, and a person's values. And when I say values, I'm not meaning this in the throwaway. Everyone knows the coaching, you know, what are your values? What are your values? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not talking about it on that level. I'm talking about on the values that are intrinsically interlaced into your DNA. So a person's essence is for example, when I walked into the room today, and this is the first time you're seeing me, you spoke to me on the phone, but you, you get a gist of someone on the phone, but when you see them, before I open my mouth, what were the first three things that popped into your head? About you? Mm. Ooh, I'll be very honest with you. Tall was the first thing that came into mind. Um, stylish. And what else would I say? I'd say... Something deep. Something, <laughs> something deep and not shallow. Um, but I guess we're visual, right? Creatures. So that's the first thing that came to me. Um, I think... Well put together, that seemed like something, not just from a sort of visual perspective, but it just seemed like you take the time to have the initiative to, to plan things out before you present yourself. I don't know why that came out, but it just felt like you prepare, you are, um, yeah, you have a methodical approach to what you present, if that makes sense. So that is a highlighting of your essence. So what you pick up, the essence of someone is when someone stands before you, you don't know how you know, but you know what stands before you. You have an idea of the potential. You can tell if someone might be a little bit dangerous or someone has a potential to be angry or someone has the potential to be aggressive. You don't know how you know. You haven't seen evidence of this information, but you can just pick up on it. So we've kind of moved away as a human race from that ideology of really trusting that knowing. And that's the essence that somehow someone will say, mm, yeah, I could see that about you. And then you're sitting there thinking, well, you haven't seen the evidence of that. Another thing that that highlights in terms of yourself is just the color of your eyes talks about how perceptive you are. Really? And because the color of that, of my eyes? you can pick up on things very, very quickly. And then even you're like, oh, I could tell that there's even that train of thought 
think about, you see someone for five seconds and you say to me, oh, I could see that, um, you know, you're really well put together and I don't know why I could just tell this thought and there's, there's a methodical nature to what you're doing. That's a very long stream of thought for like two to three seconds. So that's just something that's so natural for you as a stream because it's part of your essence. It's part of who you are. Can't take it away. Can't distill it out. It's just naturally part of who you are. But there's sometimes when that gut instinct is, is wrong, right? I presume something or one thing based on an initial conversation or something like that. And then afterwards, it's kind of completely different once I actually get to know the person. So how do you um, balance that incongruity between those two things? I think sometimes it's not necessarily wrong, but it's just a different side of the lens, because when you're looking at like identity in terms of an individual level, and obviously that kind of then rolls out into interacting with other people, there's so many layers that come into it. So we're talking about you, your physical being, who you are, you know, and everything, the potential that you have scientifically. So there's three scientific forces that govern our behaviors and what we're about and where we thrive. And that is electromagnetism, gravity, and nuclear force. And that gives rise to all of the different ways we ping across other people. So when you get to know someone, you think, oh, I thought this, but I guess I was wrong. You could be seeing them in a weak state. That's, that's still part of who they are, but it's not the part of who they are that you'd like to interact with. So a lot of people kind of make snap judgments thinking, oh, that person's not who I think they are. But I think the more I do the work, the more I pre appreciate there's so many levels of nuance to it that all interlink and tie up together to make this whole person and a lot of it is about ensuring that a person appreciates all of the stuff, the good, the bad, the ugly, the warts, the, the scars, and understands how that makes them uniquely them. You mentioned something which is really interesting in terms of uh, DNA or science and things that are sort of predetermined. Uh, to me, that's interesting because we live in a world where people think you can be um, susceptible to external factors and all those kinds of things are... Uh, of, of bigger importance when it comes to determining who you are, how you see the world and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, you're saying that there's some hard-coded things in there. How do you balance out that malleability between the hard-codedness of who you are and the external world? So that malleable thinking outside of the box, you know, those two things, because if you told me you could tell something about me based on the color of my eyes, you know, and that's based on science, you know, that could be a slippery slope whereby we start to say, you know, I don't say racism or anything like that, but it's like, oh, based on the color of your skin or based on these physical characteristics or based on these things that are out of your control, you are this way. Do you know what I mean? Is, is that a slippery slope you ever wonder or is it really hard-coded in science and this research and things like that to back it up? So I think a lot of the stuff I do, if it was like a very specific, we're sitting down and we're doing like actual client work, it is coded in science as an assessment tool that I use. And then all of that assessment kind of gives almost like a fingerprint uh, idea of how a person is and the potentials that they have. And it's a scale. So I know you're quite mathematical and so am I. It's, you know, if you're putting a mix of different recipes together, depending on the ratio of the mix, uh, you get a different outcome. So each individual has different mixes. We all have kind of generally speaking access to roughly the same things. Um, but depending on different proportions, it gives rise to different things. And I did like what you brought out in terms of the fact that doesn't it kind of give rise to maybe, you know, the external internal conversation. So internally, even though the things that are hardwired, because we've been so externally focused, we're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because really and truly, it's for you to access uh, or connect to a person or for you to access and connect to work or to a thing, you need to learn yourself to know this is how I access that. And a lot of people haven't done that self-learning. They've thought, if I'm doing the thing, doing the thing, I'll get the thing. And then there's that frustration of I'm doing the thing, but the thing isn't working. 
because the thing is not doing me. And it's kind of, it's an external entity and that's an external person who governs their own field. If you cannot understand and govern you and what you're about and understanding the bridges you need to make to do the certain activities, the tasks, the goals, that's where you're completely lost. Wow. So what does your engagement look like with your clients then? I mean, is it an exploratory phase? You mentioned there's some um, psychological tests or whatever it is or, or things that you do in the initial interim. But what does that process of figuring out this internal, your essence and all that, if you can walk us through the stages and how you actually engage with your clients? So I think in terms of that, it's um, there's like seven eyes that I'm not necessarily going to go into right now. But a lot of it is the investigation, that initial analysis, which is the first stage, is real hardcore stuff. So I think a lot of the work is, a lot of it's done in that first session because that first impression is as human beings, we're normally very naturally uh, able to chameleon, like work our way around showing what we think someone wants to see. So it's that first initial session that I have to have all the power I have to kind of get as much out as I possibly can, even if it's not everything, but just glimpses of what a person may be hiding, what they may be seeing, what they may be doing. And then from there, inviting them to commit because a lot of that work is 60% the client. So I'm there to facilitate, I'm there to guide, I'm there to kind of hold your coat as you explore the box and treasure chest that is you, but I can't do the heavy lifting. So the onus is on them to a certain extent to want to go on this? Or yes, be- to really want to kind of say, okay, I'm ready for this. Um, I'm ready to kind of expand the boundaries. I'm ready to kind of optimize myself. Um, it's not a difficult process because I think with a lot of my clients as carefully intrusive as I have to be to kind of get them to the place they need to, they laugh as much as they cry. So they'll have tears and then we'll make fun of it and they'll start laughing and then it's, it doesn't feel as heavy. Um, but with a lot of that, it's, it depends on the client. So they do the assessment, all the clients do the assessment, that kind of yields one layer of results. While I'm kind of doing the initial assessment and cutting into their psyche, certain things ping. So when you hear someone talking about different experiences, you can kind of hear that's not their voice. That's the voice of someone in their life. And then it's figuring out who that someone is. And it's normally a close friend, a mother or a father, but it's something they've programmed themselves into saying because it's been programmed into them. And they don't realize that incongruence between the voice they have inside and these things that have been programmed in because they think it's all me. And then other things which come up is like different traumas that have kind of altered and kind of maybe dented the vehicle and understanding what that is and finding a place where that can be put. And uh, kind of the future aspect of, okay, how do we work with this? Because I primarily deal with a person on the level of their natural state, their natural existence, um, the success rate is very rapid. So by session two or three, people are kind of being themselves because it's like, oh, I didn't know it was so hard doing it that way. But now, yeah, doing me is really easy. So I did have a client who managed a very, very large team uh, in Nigeria. I think it was 297 branches. And we did, you know, the process. And I remember her calling me up saying, I think I might be fired because I have so much fun every day. Like doing me is so easy. (laughs) Like this is amazing. Whereas before she was fatigued, she could barely get out of bed on the weekend, but just showing her how to do her role, but do it the way she naturally does things was like, I can do this all day. What I wanted to pick up on there was what you mentioned in terms of events or traumas and things like that. Because before someone even wants to initiate and go on this journey to figure out their identity and all that, um, if I think about my own experience, it's usually cultivated by a need to do something or something that happened in my life that makes me want to 
to take action on something like that, whether it's change job, change geography, change location. What are some of those circumstances that happens in someone's life that makes them actually want to reach out to you to undergo or go through this process? I think on an underlying basis, because I've done a lot of research on this with all my clients, it's not a specific event, but it's more an energetic space that they operate in. So normally clients come to me with their bottom over depression. So they've been through hell. They're kind of like, okay, I know like I need to kind of get back up there and it's either something in a job or relationship or something. And they're like, I want that, but I'm here. So how do I get that? And it's something that they can't even say out loud because it, it, they feel like, how can I want this after having been on this journey or been through this thing or, you know, being told all these things. And it's, it's just that little kind of, you know, the trajectory of being completely exponential rather than being like a slow climb. That's the sweet spot for the clients who work with me. Really? I, uh, I, there was something you mentioned when we, uh, we spoke earlier on about the different phases of life, which is relatively interesting. So uh, you mentioned sort of midlife crisis that people go into um, that, you know, helps them or fosters that discussion of where am I in the world? What's my place? How am I trying to figure out all that kind of stuff? How do you or what are those different phases that you've seen that people go through when it comes to this identity thing? Because I imagine it's not a one time thing or, or no, is it actually so one time the, thing? The, the underlying governing principle of yeah. any client I work with, any team I work with, because I do a lot of work with businesses and, and team kind of cohesion and optimizing teams and making sure people are doing the right thing in the right place. The underlining thing that I'm always like, it's always on my mind when I'm looking at the person is how old are you? Why? Because that is the single most powerful part of someone's identity that they cannot do anything about. So all the external factors you can kind of work around, you can find a fix, but age is, is, is the pressures of age and time are the one thing that you have to work with, not against. And people working against it cause themselves the most damage in terms of who they are and where they're at. And it's knowing and explaining to a person that this is the stage you're in. These are the features of the stage you're in. These are the challenges of the stage you're in, but enjoy the stage, like make the most of the stage, get the most development and fruit and juice and goodness out of the stage, because then you're going, you'll be well equipped for the next one. I'd actually like to challenge you on that. So, I mean, thinking of, let's say uh, a 27 year old guy, what, what stage would you say they're in? Um, or what are some of the characteristics of someone in their late twenties? Um, you know, sort of based on my uh, experience in my professional career and all that kind of stuff. Have you had, do you have a hypothesis around that? Yeah. So anything? in your stage, you're kind of gearing up for the power phase of life. Hmm. Okay. What is so that? you're in what we call the experimental phase. For 21, it's like your vehicles just left the lot. So you've kind of like been through your parents, been through kind of uni, you kind of had moderate experimentation, but it's actually, that's real life. It's not scripted anymore. There's no college. There's no kind of trajectory. It's like, okay, this is me. And in your 20s, until you hit 30, that's the time to experiment, you know, stretch yourself, figure out kind of, you know, in a real sense, in the real world, where you're at, what you're doing. But from 27, you kind of have this, depending on the person, because different people have different reactions to it, it's almost like this uh, slow grinding halt to that next stage, because it's almost like, if we look at like a seed, you have like just the seed. And then as it germinates, it's kind of a shoot. As the shoot germinates, it kind of like grows up and there's two leaves. As the leaves kind of grow, you have the stem. The stem's heavier, then you get branches. So you're kind of going into the branches phase where you can feel there's internal change. There's like thoughts come start coming up in your head of like different traumas and your views of different things in your life. And you're sitting there thinking, oh no, I just need to kind of hustle. And and you're, you're, you're pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down. That will intensify, 28 intensify, 29 intensify. And then sort of like 30 is the point where you think, I feel I'm ready to stop pushing it down. 
and I feel I'm ready to actually deal. I'm ready to kind of get into it. Um, but a lot of people kind of get that from 28 to 29 where the pressure kind of intensifies and it's an internal thing. It's like, they've got their life together. They have the good job. They have the great friendship group. They kind of know life, but there's a lot of pressure in that. And I have some clients who pre that sort of early twenties or sort of mid twenties to sort of come and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking therapy, I'm thinking whatever. And it's not an age group I genuinely work with, but it's about giving them enough resilience to understand now's not the time to unpack that box. You will have the emotional space to do that at 30. Really? But to unpack it now, you probably can get a lot from it, but you'll get to this place at 30 where you're like, yeah, I get it. Okay, yeah, 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 I see now. I see. I see. So then your clients in your 30s, then once you actually start to unpack all this kind of stuff, what does that journey look like? So I think in the 30s, the early 30s is, is a very critical time because they have like a four-year window. Of, of really kind of clearing up all of the, the the stuff from their childhood, clearing up all of the like major traumas. And when I say clearing up, I don't mean like we're fixing anyone. It's just understanding in your mind where they fit, how they fit within you and how they fit within your makeup and what resources they've given you and just getting the gold and the goodness from it. Because from 34 until 43, that's the power phase. So it's a time in life where people make the most money. It's when marriages happen. It's where everything happens and you're kind of in the chrysalis. And that's when you kind of like weave your little web and all these things are going on. And it's the time, the period of the most internal change. And then at 43, you become an adult. At 43? Oh my goodness. That's such a long time. <laughs> is it the same for men and women? Yeah, same for everyone. Wow. And what do you consider someone becoming an adult exactly? What does that mean to you? They get life. They get why they're here. They have a very balanced, very even perspective. It's like the, the tsunamis that were going on in the 20s and 30s calm down. And it's just like this even, okay. I see. And you get why they're here. So you don't figure out your purpose until 43? Purpose is 52. Adult is 43. Wow. You seem very hard-coded into these facts. And this is based on, obviously, the research? or Yeah, it's based on research and study. Yeah. Um, but it's one thing very early on in my practice um, that I realized you do have to honor the kind of stages. I do get a lot of people who come as clients before the next leap. So as I said to you, it's that depression expansion thing. I do get a lot of people in windows where it's kind of just before that next stage and they don't know what's going on internally. And the moment I ask the age, I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> and in terms of uh, their 50s or 60s, I've heard that that's when people are happiest. And to be quite frank with you, that's when they care the least about what other people think about them. I Is think 50, true? you find the purpose of life. So it's like a lot of people sometimes give up by that stage. But the ones, yeah, some do. Like by 52, they sort of think, is it worth it? Because they've been through a lot and they were battered in the power stays and they're kind of very nostalgic about the 20s. So some of them give up, but some of them who do want to kind of figure out, actually, this is how this, 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 this tie together. This is what I want to bring forth. Because they're gearing up until 60 to build their legacy. And then at 60, that's when in the legacy phase, and it's like looking to say, okay, I have all of this information. How am I pouring it on? How am I, you know, giving it to someone else? How am I imparting it? And it's just the natural phases in life. And it's, it's different phases. So they have different rhythms. They have different flow and respecting that within someone's identity is very important because I can't treat yourself the same as a 60 year old who's in the place of like, it's Zen and who do I like pass on to and who do I connect with? Likewise, I can't treat them like yourself where it's like, okay, deal with your stuff, deal with your stuff, deal with your stuff, because it's not the time. I'm kind of curious as to where you found the passion or the need to want to do this, because it's not a very common path that most people go on. Um, first of all, actually undergoing this journey themselves, but even someone that wants to foster or get into this space to encourage other people to do this. What was it about your experience that really 
pushed you or propelled you to go into this space? I think I kind of fell into it. I didn't really choose it as such. Um, so it was off the back of losing my little brother to suicide at the end of my second year of university. And he was my world. He was like, I was his mini mom, as he called it. And he wanted me to, to be his big sister. Um, and I remember I was on track to kind of, I worked for city group before uni. I went to uni and I was on track to this career in the city. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do everything. And then all of a sudden it hit this place of, you never know the pieces of you that are made up of the ones you love. And I remember when he died, it was very much like, I did all of that for him. So he would never have an excuse not to try not to push himself. So I pushed myself well beyond reason. So if he ever was like, I can't do this, I'm like, no, like I've shown you, you can do it. Mm-hmm. So I think after that, it was like, okay, I need, I need somewhere to heal and plan. So I had a lot of conversations with, you know, colleagues and, and people I knew from the city and sort of said, okay, where do you see this going? How do, and all of them like, yeah, you know, go into this, go into this. Oh, they love you. And you've got this going for you and whatever else. And I kind of knew that, okay, it's not the right time for me. So I found um, a specialist education school that I worked in for five years, four, four years. And it was a quite beautiful space where it was just one-on-one clients. And, you know, it was a beautiful space because it was like, I was just doing me and it was comfortable that it was, it wasn't mindless. It was challenging enough that I was excited and like excited about it, but it wasn't something that was going to like eat my heart and soul out. And then after about two to three years working with like rural families around the world and kind of doing a lot of the fixing work, one of my friends said to me, you're not educating. What you're doing is like very high level coaching. You should look into it, this, that, and the other. And from being in banking, I'd had coaches and stuff and it's like a great day off work, but you don't really kind of take it seriously in terms of, okay, what is this? Um, so went on that journey and it was like, oh, this is what I am doing and, and really kind of got stuck in and did modules around the world and really kind of read loads of books. And a lot of the stuff I did intuitively made a lot of sense. And then obviously you get to the stage where they're saying you have to niche. And I had this dear friend who's a really great business coach who sat down and said, you're doing these incredible things with clients and businesses, but no one can like, like pinpoint you in their mind. Mm -hmm. You need to pick something. And I, I'm not, one of my, um, core values is not being limited. So I thought, oh, the limitations of a niche. Oh boy! And um, he was like, you don't have to marry it. You just have to commit for two years. And I was like, simple identity. I've done it with all of my clients for the past 10 years. They don't even know that I'm doing it. And, and, and that's it. So when I thought about it, thought of my own story, thought about what I do with clients and then did the research, I was like, okay, this is it. So no one occupies the space in the way that I'm doing it. So it was a lot of kind of pulling things together. But um, it was a learning. And in terms of the motivation for the clients, I sat down with a different business coach and he sort of said to me, which clients do you pour yourself into? Like leave nothing on the table. And I just, I I started crying and I sort of said to him, "Um, young men between the ages of 20 and 22. Wow. Because I don't want them to be him. Yeah, that's pretty deep. That's a pretty powerful thing that propelled you to get into what you're getting into. But I guess it's part of your journey and what you're supposed to do. And it really, um, in some ways it's good because I think it's helped you focus and really understand what is the most important thing you'd like to see come into the world after you're done here, right? After we're all done here. For me, you know, when you're younger, they're always telling you about how, um, you know, you should strive to 
be as happy as possible or whatever it is. I it wasn't until sort of my mid twenties that I realized actually it's the opposite. What is worth suffering for? That's how I started to frame it. What is worth going through a lot of crap for? And I think that helped me narrow down, you know, sort of what I'm trying to get into. And I think for yourself, I don't want to speak about like your experience, but it's kind of like, what is worth doing? What is worthwhile? What is worth putting out into this world at the end of the day when I'm done, right? I think, I, I don't know, but that's kind of my, my, my high level thoughts. But also in terms of working with royal families, you, you alluded to the fact that you work with them. Is there a difference in working with people that are a certain class or a certain um, economic structure versus everyone else or not really? Everyone's different. So yeah, there is an inherent difference. I think the problems they deal with are very different. The thinking is more global. Um, so you're not building them up for them. You're building them up for them and the nation that they're going to be <laughs> working with. And it's it's a very different mindset, a very different kind of thinking. Uh, it's it's a very different, it's a beautiful challenge and I love doing it. And, and that's why I was very good at doing it. Um, but you're, you're talking about much deeper questions and higher level thinking where I need them to know themselves well enough to change the world. Wow. That's a deep one right there. Know yourself well enough to change the world because you don't, you can't change the world until you know yourself well enough. Is that it? Because you don't know which flexibility you have. You don't know how to find space in yourself when everything is going completely wrong. And if you look at it from a very simple individual level, that if I get a client who's, you know, a, a, a maybe a dad and they kind of just have a job and you're working with them and their biggest challenges are how can I be useful to my family and then really help them and that impact will spill out to maybe their extended family and, and maybe their community but when you're working with someone at that level it's very much like there's so many other things that they notice and see in the world that they don't have the time to bring forth but when you give them that space and you create it and it's like the time between sessions they come back and they've written like you know, 10 different like things they want to launch around the world. And they're talking about like what they're going to do for their own country and their community. And they're talking about kind of where they're going to go with things. So very different levels. Yeah, that's pretty extensive. I, I, I would think that there'd be something homogeneous around that class of people and that globalized um, taking responsibility for other people apart from yourself. That, that's a very interesting thing. Personally, in my life as well, because I've had the unique opportunity to be very pan-African or pan-Black in, in a sense, you know, being from Botswana and Nigeria, spending time in East Africa, you know, spending time with African-Americans in America, now understanding what it means to be Black British. I have a holistic sense of what it means to sort of be a Black person in the context of a globalized world um, because there weren't that many of us, to be very frank with you, you know, especially in, uh, you know, you see a lot of Africans that come to England and go to school here and then they understand those two contexts. But there are very few people that will understand the sort of American experience, British, mm, African. Global the, person. The, the global Black mm. perspective, especially. I think been growing up in that because my father is Dominican, my mother is Zulu. And then I grew up in Zimbabwe and then I've been here and I've worked in the States and I've worked in Europe. Um, and just that, that pan-Africanness was always kind of br like brought up in us. And it was like, you know, different, you know, leaders from different parts of Africa. And that was my childhood and growing up around that. So in terms of, I think blackness as a thing is, it's a difficult one. And I think it's one that's difficult because even black people don't know what it is because they have that very narrow perspective of, you know, this is me in England and this is what it means to me. And this is what I'm angry about. This is what I'm really upset about. And this is me in America and this is my lane and this is what's upsetting for me and all of those things. And then I think it has uniquely positioned me on a very personal level to see both sides of the argument, the colonialism, apartheid type of kind of 
oppression that we've had to experience as well as the slavery kind of arguments and the and the maladies and psychopathologies around that and and seeing both worlds has been beautiful to grow up in and to understand the nuance and the difference and it's given me a unique perspective about understanding different things and finding room and finding space and then having my own experience as an adult of knowing what it is to be a black person in England knowing what it is to be a black person in America knowing what it is to be a black person in France and Luxembourg and Spain and in broader Europe and and what advantages and disadvantages it gives you as well as your own personal presentation yeah Link- linking those two things together in terms of being black and then what you link your identity to when i think of the american context it was very interesting to me when i first went there how a lot of their identity was linked to that that cataclysmic event like slavery or something like that and in africa we never really linked our identity to like colonialism or whatever it is but how people link their identity even though there's an overarching sort of you're black but you're right there's a very narrow understanding of what that is but linking your identity to a specific be a traumatic or cataclysmic event or something like that. Um why do you think people do that and do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Because in the in the American context, linking yourself to slavery it has some benefits because you you know bring it top of mind as to why things are the way they are all that kind of stuff. But at the same time that's not the best thing to link your identity to, right? So But I think in that context they can't help it only because it did change their DNA. It changed their DNA. So from my own personal experience of having to heal that line as well as clients i've worked with who are from that when you're placed in the context of the construct of your identity is work for generations the construct of your identity is that you are less than an animal the construct of your identity is that you don't have a right to family you will be raped you will be uh, used you will be abused you will be you know used as chattel which is property and you are not human and that is something that has been trained down from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation now fair enough you're free to go but anytime you try and get the come up we will come and destroy you so there's so many things about like different areas where the black first black wall street burnt to the ground different things where they're thriving burnt to the ground so continuously you know we want you as chattel this is your place know your place whereas if you contrast that with the african side of things which is very much like you will have ancestors and you'll say oh this is the oral history and and it's and it's there's this softness and goodness of and i'm sure you speak african languages that there's certain things in our culture that which is broad in africa that is um the unthinkable there's always the unthinkable thing so there's limits in our psyche because even though um you know apartheid colonialism was really bad and there was a lot of deprivation there was a lot of abuses our roots were never ever cut out our core you 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 know where you are you know a place that you can call home you know something that is 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 comforting to give you that solid rock that you are not defined by the event but in the case of slavery they are defined by it because there's no roots to be found they cannot trace anything back it's like listless without a rudder and i know this sounds really really negative but there's a reason for that anger and that hate and that that turmoil because of what they went through and what you don't heal in a generation will go down to you know two three generations so the cells of my great great granddaughter are in my body right now and what people don't realize when it comes to trauma that stuff is 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 transmitted on a on a on a scientific level so the water molecules in a woman 2 years before she has a child are all of the molecules that make up the child so if she's going through trauma she's going through stress going through trauma and then she's like i don't know what's wrong with this kid blah 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 
Wow. It's interesting how you break it down like that. I've always heard about how trauma is passed down from generation to generation, but it just it seems so much more real, especially about the water molecules. I never really heard about that. There are a few different axes that people use when it comes to identity, right? So there's like race, there's like gender, there's some of the common ones. What are other stratifications of identity that people commonly gravitate towards or are axes of identity, if that makes sense? So I'm going to talk about existing, not what is perceived. Okay. Only because I think a lot of people have perceived. And when I do talks, I kind of go through a list of everyone's perceptions because I need to kind of take them from where they're at to where I'm kind of taking them to. And age, big one, like you can't run away from that. Um, I think class and socioeconomic um, is a big one that isn't actually existing. You can't escape what that is and what that defines. And even when there's upward mobility or the reverse, it is a massive defining factor. Race is also a massive defining factor. I won't go there because you're going to shoot me down if I go there. But race, <laughs> <laughs> race is a defining factor. Yeah. Um, kind of country as well, because certain countries have like a globalized identity that's kind of in the, you know, in this, in the kind of education system, in the cultural system. Like, you know, sometimes you meet people from different countries. It's like you drink the same water. It is very much a part of their identity, even if they say, oh, I'm not really like people from my country. You're like, well. Um, because it is something that is existing in that and um, what else is like a main axis Um, gender that's a really really big one that a lot of people trying to kind of break the mold and run away from Um, and I've seen it very starkly when I'm doing the analysis of a lot of my clients so because of my origin story for my business I have kind of a high proportion of male clients purely because that was the the reason of the birthplace and when I analyze the kind of trajectory of male clients in terms of their, their client journey and female clients, there is a very stark difference. Such so, as? So with male clients, um, they need a lot of intervention very early, very intense, and then they naturally just flow into the change. Whereas with female clients, it's very much a kind of, it's more of a, a longer process of kind of like convincing and discussion and kind of, you know, rumination and digestion. And there's a lot more around that. Um, and there's the adage that men are rock, women are water. So with my male clients, I'm there with the chisel, like, <laughs> and, and they're more responsive when they don't know me. And then the initial session is a full on, like very heavy duty. I'm there with a the chisel and the rest of it is smoothing over with water. I see. Whereas with female clients, you're dropping things into the water to distill and they need to kind of ruminate and, and diffuse and figure out how it like relates to my husband, how it relates to my best friend, how it relates to the family, how it relates to the community. So it, it it's very different. And even if this is, this is separate to sexuality as well, because I've had clients who, you know, are in same sex relationships, but they can't intrinsically escape their maleness or their femaleness. Um, it's so interesting because I'm trying to figure out where this maps into the business world. A big part of our audience are people that are in business. And this seems like a lot of personal um, self-discovery, uh, you know, all those types of elements. But there are ramifications for this in terms of business, Massive. right? In terms of your business identity, your professional identity, that's on a sort of personal scale. But even beyond that, the identity of a business itself is made up of multiple different identities within there. And then there's the overarching one, which forms into there. So how does the sort of personal 
identity journey map into the sort of business or the professional sense of things? So if you're talking about business as in like a person who's an entrepreneur and business, or you're talking about business in terms of you're part of a corporation and how does that fit in? Actually, let's talk about the two. Uh, okay. and see the so difference. when you're talking about a person who's, who's like, let's say a founder of a business or a CEO or whatever else, your identity is the business because it's like you're birthing a child. So if you don't bring the child up properly, and you know where the lines are, where the boundaries are, where everything else is, the business kind of collapses because the moment you're not in it, uh, things seem to fall apart. And a lot of frustration I get from entrepreneurs is that, you know, I had this idea, but for some reason the staff aren't getting it, that, you know, I have to, I'm working all the time, this, that, and the other. And if you don't know yourself, you can't impart, you can't diffuse, you can't place that into a place where it's a higher calling, it's a higher mission, it's something that someone gets the essence of it to the extent that if you're not there, I kind of know what you want me to do. So it's completely imperative. It's not something that isn't as, as personal as it is, business is personal. I know people say, you know, business isn't personal. Business is personal, deeply personal, because it's it comes from people's dreams, their blood, their sweat, their tears. There's a lot of investment in it in terms of a financial um, level, which is energy. So all of those different things are deeply personal. So in terms of someone's, a lot of problems I've seen with business owners who come and you know, work with me and even their teams is cash flow issues because of the fact that they can't manage their, their human capital and their cultural capital. So if you have a business owner who has very restricted money flow because they are doing certain things in terms of in themselves that they're, they're stunting money coming in and going out and all of those things, it, there's no business. So it's very interesting that a lot of the people I've dealt with who are entrepreneurs is kind of figuring out where the kind of the, the glitch in the pipes are, so to speak, with the money flow and then the understanding of themselves for them to kind of know if this is the trigger point. Once you hit this place and this domino falls, you need to find a way to reverse it because it will impact your business, it will impact your teams, it will impact your relationships, it will impact everything else. And some of the best founders, are there any characteristics or apart from being able to identify who they are and what they can bring to the table and all that kind of stuff, is there any overarching thing you've seen uh, that makes them some of them successful or some of them really good leaders and some things that, you know, discounts them in that regard? Is there any classification there? I think the, the, the best case studies I could do and it's all over different people all over the world is that they, they kind of adhere to the three principles of identity. Know thyself know thy lane and stay in thy lane. And the best leaders, the best founders, the best creators, the best thought leaders do that and stay true to that, no matter what voices are coming out from there. Because when you do that, you have space, you have flexibility, you're in flow. So not many people have access to natural leadership in terms of who they are. And that, that, that physical trait in terms of natural leadership is dependent on height. So men above six foot, women above five, nine have natural access to being natural born leaders. They have the gravitas, they have the presence. So as you said, when I walked in, you're like, oh, you're very tall, but I'm the shortest in my family. So I know oh, what wow. it is to be the right. Family, man. That's a but it's, it's very much about because of that physical access, I don't have that. Oh, let me figure out how to lead. It's part of my DNA. Whereas if you get someone who doesn't have that natural access, but knows who they are, they still know how to lead and how to be and how to move using the resources that they have to do something that is not natural to them. And that's where the kind of catch 22 is because a lot of people who think, okay, I want to be a business owner. They're thinking, oh, I need to be a leader. I need to do this. And they're trying to copy the traits of someone who has the natural ability to do that. And that's where they go wrong because they're exhausted because they're leaving their natural, really good resources, which will definitely help them to move forward by imitating that.
So you're saying the shorter people are not natural leaders. Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily. I'm just saying that that's one of the traits. I do have clients who are under those height restrictions who still do have access to it. Um, so this is not hard and fast. This is kind of, it depends on like how strict you are doing with the analysis. But generally speaking, I have seen a lot of people and that actually that's one of the ones that pings a lot in terms of like a toxic level is I do have a lot of clients who, because they don't have access to something that leadership gives them, which is creating order and creating systems, um, they don't have natural access to that. They'll access it in the weak state, which is manipulation. And when I say manipulation, it sounds like a very charged word, but I mean it in the sense of they will try and find ways to order other people so they can bring order into their life and business. That's fascinating. For me, uh, there was an interesting statistic that I read about how most CEOs are above six foot. And the first thing that came to my mind was, man, that's a form of discrimination, right? That we're naturally selecting amongst ourselves that tall people um, appear like they're leaders because they're daunting or whatever it is. And I thought that might not necessarily be the case. Short people might have access to this, um, these leadership capabilities and actually might be better leaders. But maybe there is something about maybe an evolutionary perspective that you can see beyond everyone else's horizon. And that just makes you feel like the natural informant to other people that, hey, I can see this. And that's an element of leadership is seeing beyond someone's current existing myopic view of the world. And maybe there's you know some translation from that physical manifestation that translates itself into being a leader. But that's just my hypothesis. I love how you picked up on that. So if someone is that height, their view of the world is top down. And their view of the world is very much like, okay, how do we now break this down from where I'm at into the systems and the places where things go? So it is very much about, it, that element of people is a very seeing element because we have three elements as people, seeing, doing, thinking. So that is very much seeing and it's seeing the world from a top-down approach and understanding, okay, like, where is this? How do we work this? How does this go? Okay, give me more information. Let's see what this is. But a person with that natural access <laughs> is benevolent naturally. They're very much like, okay, how do we make this win-win? How do we kind of make sure that this is something that balances out? So a lot of those traits are so naturally ingrained that if you try and say to someone who has them, okay, let's, they, they can't distill it because they're like, well, obviously, because it's part of who they are. And each individual is not just one thing. People aren't just tall. They're tall and they have different color eyes, you know, knows where they store fat, all of those things. And all of those things come together to make the whole of the identity. Oh, so you're saying my fat levels determine if I'm a good leader as well? Oh boy, I got to hit the gym. So <laughs> no, not necessarily because if someone, if someone stores fat in a specific place, like sort of around the stomach and stuff, it means that they can archive large amounts of uh, information and they have the unique ability to kind of uh, be very kind of inclusive and very empathetic. So everything that you kind of have gives you something. And that's why I can't say it's just this one thing or it's just that one thing. It's the mix and understanding your unique mix, your unique recipe that makes you this really flavorsome, delicious thing to like consume rather than <laughs> something that's overpowering with like, oh, there's a bit too much salt in there. And that's what we tend to do as human beings is that we add too much of something that doesn't belong in us. And we wonder why we're off-putting to other people. I want to make sure that we don't neglect the other side of things. So there was like the CEO founder, but then you said there's also identity within the business sense of things. Yeah. Right? So that's really about making sure that, so the clients I get in that regard, and even when I work with teams and businesses, it's, it's, it's very much about stress management and productivity and attrition. And a lot of that is because within the spokes of a business, it's like the organs of a body, the heart can't be expected to absorb 
oxygen. The, the, the muscles can't be accepted to like, you know, absorb different things. It's understanding in that organization, like an orgasm, kind of what works together properly. So on that level, it's people knowing themselves well enough to kind of know which tasks and which things they should spend their time on. So they have enough energy for themselves when they leave work, as well as to be very productive throughout the day. Yeah, that's one that I personally struggle with as well. I mean, at work, you're pulled in so many different directions, especially in a sort of cockpit um, decision-making capability that I'm in, or should I say role that I'm in, whereby I'm pulled in so many different directions and prioritizing between my heart and my lungs and all these different functions and ensuring that the whole body is heading in the right direction or is cohesive in a certain sense is something that I personally struggle with, but I'm sure a lot of other people, which is where do I fit in being in a cockpit position, sort of, I don't want to say the brains of it, but understanding where everything should fit and how it should go together, the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see that a lot with people that I work do. in I do. So like, as I was referred to you earlier in the interview, the, the, the woman I was working with who was kind of in a financial institution and she had 256 streams, it was helping her to understand that, okay, you're in the driver's seat. What does that look like for you? So I know with her specifically, she had the unique ability that there was a very big part of herself who was just problem solver. She could problem solve all day long and it wouldn't drain her. But there was another part of her that she wasn't a, a, a worker in the trenches. But a lot of her role in terms of what she'd taken on was working in the trenches. So as much as she loved the problem solving, she was doing too much work in the trenches for her to be useful in her job. So in terms of constructing what we did, and at the same time, there was a very beautiful part of her that loved variety. She can never do these things, the same thing twice. Once she's created a system and it's working and it's implemented and she's rolled it out, she's done. Like she it drains her and kills her to go back and do that again. So a lot of that was understanding that, okay, this is you, honor you, honor the variety, honor the problem solver, honor that you do not work in the trenches. And just created systems around that to kind of help her to understand that, Okay, I create the system. Who checks on the system? Who's in the trenches for me in my team? She had different people who I said to her, this is what you need to look for as a trait. They can do it all day long and they will never complain. And then she kind of plugged people in the right type of positions to make sure that the team just worked. So they got their yearly goals done in three months. Wow. Because everyone was just doing them. I hate to cut the conversation short, but unfortunately we do. Um, it's really great to have you on the show. Where can people find you if they want to hear more about you? So I'm on LinkedIn under Lati Dube. Um, all of my socials are exactly the same. So if people reach out and let me know, that would be great to speak to them. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Saka. <laughs>